Thank you for calling This Week in Sparkling Water. My name is Yua Kim Erickson, and I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water, and I can't get to the phone right now. So just leave a message after the beep. Okay, whatever. I had a... Yeah, I had a missed call from this number. All right, let's just make this episode like a little... um mental health check-in, I think. Election night was last night. Um, I'm not like a politics expert, so I don't think I should say anything about the politics of it. But I do have a lot to say about the sort of um, mental health, my personal mental health in relation to it. Because I think especially after I got sober, uh, politics was one of the things I would hyper-focus on. And it would like displace my own understanding of my emotions. And I would just like embody the national political feeling. And that would be the feeling in my heart. And it's like such a dysfunctional. Because it's like, if things are going well in the country politically, it's not even that that's a good feeling or thing. It's just like this. There's like a layer of pain and, and derealization sort of layered on the fucking thing, you know? And it's like, I don't know how it's so powerful. Like, I was talking to my uncle about it, and he's so different from me, but he just has the same problem. And he also admits to it that it's like he just watches too. Like, politics in America, it's such a great entertainment product. They've just made it into this, like, impossible because the entertainment machine is just looking for anything that it can make seem important so make seem dramatic and make and just have something where they can ratchet up the importance of it and just get a bunch of people in a room screaming at each other about how important it is and then as a human being you just get so convinced that they must be right because they're also human beings. You know, on, on a certain level, we never get out of this social state of like what we can conceptualize is there's a room, there's 12 people in the room. We got to take a temp on the room. Like what are people feeling? Is the group of 12 people in our social matrix that we're in, is, is the mood pretty good? Are we chilling? Like can we be calm or are they all panicking? You know, I remember um, – when I was in my early 20s, I did LSD a couple of times. And one thing that my mind would do on LSD is like, it would, it would make me panic. But the way it would make me panic is that I would be looking at the faces of the people in the room. Like I'm in a living room somewhere and there's five people in the room and I would have no visual hallucination except that when I'm looking at someone's face, it looks like they are super panicking. Like their face is contorting in a, in a state of absolute like worry or panic or just like fear. So I would look at everyone's faces and they'd all be panicking. I'd be like, shit, something is really fucking wrong. And it's like, looking back on it, it's so clear to me that like, that's the mo, like that's the main way of how panic gets under my skin when I feel like, the vibe, because there's no way for a human to conceptualize a million people. Like if, if I read a poll saying that, where they poll a million people and it says in the poll that all this one million people, they're all in a state of panic. Like that doesn't have much emotional valence to me. 
because we're all emotionally, we're just cave people and we can really only conceptualize like 12 people or like our inner circle. So like the thing that really makes me panic is to see 10 faces and see them panic. Yeah, I don't know. And there's something about how the polit, like a national political landscape, TV and like the media has figured out how to translate a national political emotional feeling into 10 faces and they put the 10 faces in front of you and they're all screaming. But so anyway, election night was last night and it is a success story for me because I didn't this time around in 2022. Oh my God, I feel a sneeze coming on in 2022. I am not, I wasn't, it's raining outside. I wasn't obsessed with it. Previous election cycles, more the presidential election than the midterms. The midterms is slightly more of a bureaucratic thing. It's a little bit less of just like the pure characters, the pure like Mar Marvel Cinematic Universe style, good versus evil. You have a protagonist and your enemy has, a, has an antagonist. And, you know, <laughs> there's two guys fight duking it out. Um, the midterms is slightly easier to tune out from, but still there's a lot of shit going on. And um, I didn't read, I've been really not reading the news very much. And I, there's this thing where like previous election cycles, including the midterms, I've been checking 538.com, the letters, not the numbers, probably 15 times a day. Like the model, the 538 model, they have a, this like fucking statistical model of predicting what's going to happen. They plug in all the poll data on one end and they show you a graphic and it's like, it tells you what's going on. That used to be like my homepage, like my landing page in my browser. It's funny how homepage means two different things, but, but anyway, um, it's confusing, not funny. It's not funny at all. It's confusing how homepage means both the main page of like, if you go to Reuters.com, they have a homepage and that's the first thing. But homepage is also when you open your browser, what is the first thing it opens up? That's also called a homepage. Anyway, uh, also I could be wrong. I could be using those words wrong. I, only, I had this thing where yesterday on the eve of the election, I'm like, hey, you know what's a healthy thing to do? Let's just check the news one time of the, on the eve of the election. Just spend 10 minutes on it. Like, that's a very reasonable media diet thing to do. I mean, it, it, yeah, there's a lot to say about this. Like, if I was a voter in this country, I think it'd be more reasonable to, like, look at the regionality, like, the, the regional relevant stuff to me the different propositions that I can vote on. I think it's very healthy to not be completely unplugged and to like read up in a sort of long form informed voter way on the propositions that are on your ballot. But I'm not a voter. So I've been super unplugged. And then on the eve of the election, I check it one time and it doesn't look very good for Democrats and that doesn't make me feel great. But I'm not like completely replacing my own personal emotional life with how the Democrats are doing <laughs> because that's a fucked up thing to do. And I'd done that a lot in my life, you know, God damn. And there was a high, there was a feeling of, there was a drug like high, you know, the golden age of Obama. 
God damn. But I just checked it. And then this morning I checked it again. And it, it you know, it doesn't seem like it was that, like the take right now is that the red wave didn't materialize. That's the headline everywhere. The economy is really terrible. And then if that has this incredible effect on the polls, then you have to sit here and be like, Jesus, people are so stupid. They think the fucking president has this like incredible power of the economy in the short term, as if it wasn't like multiple previous presidents that put way too much, printed way too much money and put it into the economy and caused this massive inflation. And also inflation is a, the other thing is like inflation is a thing in every country on earth right now. And half of those countries are democracies. And in those countries that are democracies, half of those countries have left-wing governments and half of those countries have right-wing governments. And they're all dealing with inflation and there's a backlash to all of them. And it's so stupid because if it was because of left-wing politics or right-wing politics, and if the solution was to just vote the other way, then there would be some pattern there. But there's no pattern. It's just like all split down the middle. Anyway, so there's some success story for me there personally of like, I've been chilling a little bit and I haven't been so plugged in and I've been a little bit slowed down and I haven't been going to a lot of AA meetings. Uh, And what I mean by that, I haven't actually been to an AA meeting in probably two, two and a half months. Haven't been texting with my AA people, but there's a calmness in my heart and I'm okay. And like, I noticed like this morning I... I've had this to-do list with a couple of things that I've been procrastinating on and I've been wanting to post a couple of things on Facebook and I posted some things on Facebook this morning and then I immediately become this person that's like, as soon as what I'm thinking about leads, like at the end of each thought, whatever I'm thinking about, when I get to the end of that thought and the thought tapers out and I'm done thinking about the thing, the next thing that pops up is like, oh, I should check my Facebook to see if someone reacted to the thing I posted on Facebook, which is like such a embarrassing thought. It's such a dirty, shameful, embarrassing, stupid thought, unhealthy. It's so deeply unhealthy. And that's where I'm at. But I notice it, and I don't post things to Facebook all the time, and I just know that, I mean, I just, it's such a powerful dynamic, and it's like, in the different dynamics involved in social media, the thing of like, okay, so you sit and and scroll through the feed, like the feed has this one hold of you. And then this other thing that just brings you back to the platform. Like the thing that brings you back to the platform is that you want to check and see if anyone messaged you or if anyone reacted to anything you posted. And then the thing that keeps you there is the feed. And it's like, wow, that thing comes together. Like that is such a, wow, hats off. Hats off to those guys that like over time put together that thing, you know? Because that thing is so good at what it's doing. You go on there because you want to be like, did anyone react to the thing I posted? And then you stay on there just watching like boosted posts about bed frames and like some cat in Africa 
and like hate politics, fear, hate hyphen politics, hyphen fear, you know? But I've been doing pretty good. I've been, there's a couple of dangerous things going on where like at work, I was somehow roped into getting Instagram on my phone so that I could be on certain work accounts, which I don't want. Also, I'm so critical of how other people do their social media, but I'm also terrified of myself making mistakes related to it. And it's like, I'm so scared because I keep, um, I'm at an age now where I'm a little bit of a boomer and I accidentally put my phone in my pocket unlocked and my phone is a little bit old and a little bit shitty. So it's not like, I think really modern phones have a really smart sort of butt dial protection where the phone can tell if pressings on the screen are just your butt pressing on it. So I think new phones are really good at protecting against this, but my phone is like six years old. So I'll, I, I will take my phone out of my pocket and it'll be unlocked and I'll have taken like 12 screenshots of different things and I'll have texted people like weird screenshots of shit. And I'm so terrified of like posting a screenshot of nonsense to the Holbrook Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> That's one of my biggest fears. Oh, God. But so far, it hasn't happened. But so I've ended up with Instagram on my phone, and I Facebook is no longer blocked on my phone. But I have, I've been, I've been good. Like I've, I, I've maybe three times a week have I had Insta- a thing where I sit down and check Instagram on my phone. It's so bad, and I shouldn't do it. And it's happened maybe three, four times a week, and it's, and that's benign. That's not a full takeover. That's not like, yeah. Because this thing, like I posted something this morning, and it's like. Yeah. I mean, it's bad. This other thing that's been good, actually, instead of, and this is counterintuitive, but I've been watching a little bit of TV. And counterintuitively, that's actually good for me. Like, there is a time and a place for television. Because there's a time and a place where you're just too tired to to be doing anything um, interactive, where you're engaging and you're doing something. And in those times when I'm too tired to do anything more than just sit there and consume, if I don't, if I look back and I realize I haven't watched TV or a movie for six months, that means that all those times when I was too tired to do anything and I just wanted to like consume media, it means that I have watched like some sort of like TikTok thing on my phone, which really is like YouTube. I go on YouTube on my phone and I watch TikToks reposted on YouTube, like the YouTube shorts or the YouTube reels or whatever it's called. It's like you sit on YouTube and it's everything is in, not, none of it is in landscape format. All of it is in profile and you scroll through it quickly and it's like just reposted TikToks. And <clears throat> if I look back on my life in the last six months, I haven't watched TV or a movie and when I've been too tired to do anything or like play a real video game, engage in a big narrative story, create art. When all the filler time in my brain has been spent on YouTube watching reposted TikToks, dude, that is bad because that is such a aggressive and poisonous and just like, what's the word? Violent rewiring of my brain. And now instead, I haven't been on that. Instead, I've been doing shit like I put my phone on my desk and I go over to my couch and I grab my remote 
and I just watch a thing for 20 minutes uninterrupted. And I just take part in a 20-minute narrative arc where I don't feel the need to like break away from it and check my phone in the middle of it. I just like watch a Rick and Morty episode for 20 minutes. Like I've been binging a couple of seasons of Rick and Morty. And I've been watching some, you know, documentaries on Hulu where they shit on religion. Like there's a documentary called God Forbid where Jerry Falwell, they dig, they have the pool boy that Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell is like the most famous, um, um, tele-evangelist in America. He was for a, multiple years, he was the most famous tele-evangelist and he was the president of the biggest Christian university in America, Liberty University. And he, at Liberty University, they had this ethics code called the Liberty Way, which is like about how you need to be a good Christian and you're not allowed to make out because you're not married and you're not allowed to drink alcohol. And and if anyone, if women get fucking assaulted, it's always their own fault because they were drinking. And, and it's like this horrible misogynist, anti-women, hypocritical ethics code where like the fucking football players always come out on top. And they're always protected and men. It's like a very handmaid's tale, you know? It's like a sort of on-ramp mental model for a handmaid's tale. Like it's for people that grow up and and um and then embody and manifest a handmaid's tale America. They like started in a Liberty University thing, and Jerry Falwell was the president of it, and he was always doing these speeches, and it's just like he he was also at the same time as talking about this ethics code for for years. He was also like hiring pool boys to fuck his wife because he really wanted to masturbate in the corner and watch young studs bone his wife. And it's just like when having the pool boy confess to this, it just turns into great documentary stuff <laughs> because it's like you can have the pool boy talk about it for 10 minutes about like how Jerry Falwell is like drinking in the corner and jacking off. And the guy's like, I was weirded out by how he's standing behind me. I'm like, is he going to do touch me? But he never touched me. He just like wanted me to watch his wife, watch me fuck his wife. And then they cut to Jerry Falwell doing a speech about how fucking conservative and what a great person he is. And then cuts back to like videos that drunks, female students send to Jerry Falwell. Anyway, it turns into great stuff. And I've been watching a bunch of documentaries like that. And it's just like, it's just like really gossipy, superficial stuff. But if I can just train my brain to relax for two hours and watch for two consecutive hours, a, a, a story arc, even if it's a gossipy, shallow thing, it's just good for my brain. Because I come out of it and it's like a little bit of escapism because I really, com um, I was really, like I was really in that world for two hours and really interested in it. And it's like you watch, you watch that God Forbidden the whole time you're like, wow. It's like hanging out with Trump. It's just such a great documentary. Um, yeah, I've been watching TV. It's good for me. I haven't been on the TikTok stuff. I haven't been drinking. I'm sober. I'm grateful for my sobriety. I wasn't obsessed with the election. It wasn't until this morning, uh, on the d day after the election, when the results are, you know, being presented in headlines on New York Times. It wasn't until today that I first heard names like Spamberger on a podcast. Like if I if I was obsessed with the 
with politics right now, I'd be so used to the name Spamburger, but instead, Spamburger is some Ohio or Georgia or something, some lady, some lady Democrat that won in the 2018 repudiation of Trump, and everyone thought that she was now going to lose because there's going to be this anti-democratic wave, and then instead she won, and all I can think about is, what a fucking weird name that is, Spamburger? Like you take spam and you slice it kind of like medium thin, half an inch, and you fry it up in a skillet and you put it between a bun and you make a spam burger. President Spam Burger. And then I Googled it and I realized it's actually Span Burger with an N. But hey, too late now. President Spam Burger. Um, but President Spam Burger for me is a symbol of how I haven't been overengaged with politics. I'm just here and I'm just trying to be a good person in my own personal life, and I'm not, like, hyper-focused in an unhealthy addiction way on politics. And we're good. And, like, this week I've been doing this thing that I do. It's the most wholesome thing I do. And I'm so grateful that this is something I don't do in a fake way. I do this for realsies. I've been making pots. And, like, making flower pots out of air-dry clay is this thing that, like, it sounds so boring and overly wholesome, and it sounds like something I'm pretending to like because I want to be a white woman on Instagram or something, but it's like I just truly enjoy it on every level. Like I think before I do it for two hours, I'm like focused on it, and in my mind I'm thinking about different ways to go of how it could go, and then I for those two hours, I'm like taking out the clay and like pre-molding it a little bit and letting it pre-dry a little bit because you don't want the clay to be completely wet while you work with it because then it'll warp too much. If it goes from 100% wet to 0% wet while drying, that's too radical of a shift. So you want it to be like 50% wet and then you make it into a shape while it's 50% wet and then it goes from 50 to zero while drying and then that doesn't warp very much so it doesn't crack and it like just works. And then like as I'm then working on it after the two hours of thinking about it, I just feel really completely focused on it. And like I'm just completely there in the moment. And I try to put a podcast on, I try to put music on, and I don't even notice if I have music on or not. I'm just like, it seems like something where you could have music on and relax. And I'm almost too tense. I'm almost too, it's almost uncomfortable how tense I am and how focused I am on it. But it's okay. And what happens in the end, what comes out, it's always a little bit different from how I was, I made a plan for two hours before I started of how I wanted it to be. And then it always comes out a little bit different because I just don't have the, the clay is just like a living thing that you're fighting with a little bit. And it doesn't, I don't have the perfect tools and I never have the right amount of clay and it's not the perfect amount of dryness and it never comes out exactly how I was pre-planning it. But you know, humans plan and God laughs, you know? Oh God, I hate that I said that. God. Anyway... So it comes out a certain way and it works and I make a little hole in the bottom and yeah, I made a couple of pots. I, um, my boss invited me to a housewarming party on Sunday and I, I think I'm going to just give her one because it's really like I make too many and I, I just have too many and there's like too many pots at my house and I really want to get rid of them and, 
And yeah, so I've been varnishing it. I got clear varnish and black varnish, and I really got good at that part because I really like, um, what's that called? Ai Weiwei, the Chinese born artist who was living in exile outside of China. He made a series, he made a series of art pieces called like colorful pots or colorful vases or something where he took 2000 year old Ming vases and just painted over them. And everyone in the West has like an opinion on it. It is actually a successful art thing. What I made is like very much inspired by that because it has, he does this thing where he takes a pot, he dips the bottom third of it in paint, turns it upside down and lets the paint drip naturally. So it's like beautiful, round, shiny daubs of paint uh, running down, creating these streaks. And it just looks real nice. And I just do it like that. And it's like so easy. And it's just so pleasant. I It really appeals to me aesthetically. And it's super easy. And I've I've done it a couple of times now. And it's like, there's a little bit of skill to it to getting them to just like drip halfway to the edge of the, t- to the, t- of the top of the vase so that it's like the maximum glob, shiny, reflective, plasticky looking, deep black globs. There's a, there's a way to get it perfect and it gets better every time. And yeah, it's, I always art thing. It's, it's successful because it is successful because it is, it was super like a lot of people talked about it and it's hard to decide what you think about it because he really destroyed 2000 year old art because he took all these, he bought all these 2000 year old vases and then he painted over all of them in this pop culture way. And then he like dropped some of them on the ground, filming himself, dropping them and being like, what, what I bought them, what they belong to me. I can do whatever you want. And it's like a commentary and like, so if you buy something really old, you own it. But there's a feeling in all of us that you can't own something like that because it belongs to all of us because it's so old. You're just a steward of it. Like that's some sort of like really basic, like even a child can sort of understand, emotionally understand that idea. And it's sort of like an attack on that idea. And it's like an idea that's really hard to... It's an idea that's really hard to implement in the free market, like, or legally or whatever. Like, you don't, you can just own a 2,000-year-old piece of art. And when you own it, you can do whatever you want to it. And in some places, there are laws around shit that's super old. You know, the Holbrook Hotel is a historic hotel, which means that it's protected, which means that if you want to do anything to it or renovate it, you have to get certain permissions from some fucking semi-government agency where they allow you to change a thing and all that stuff is always like really tough to implement and there's a lot of disagreement on it always because it just turns into a thing where historic things are in disrepair because it's so hard to agree on what to do with them but at Holbrook we did it perfect and everyone comes in and says it's such a beautiful restoration and renovation where you like maintain retained so much of the original stuff original wood and exposed brick and just so tasteful and modern and cool and old looking everyone loves it and then this week i had these three drunk people sit at the bar and they were loudly complaining and then they come came up to me 
as I was sitting at the front desk, because I didn't have a front desk person, they came up to me and would be like, you need a suggestion box, box because we have, like, we, we, we have been coming here for 30 years, and we, like, th- w- this place lost all of its history. And they were drunk, and they were explaining, and they were using phrases like, this is cancel culture. And I could tell how these are people that use phrases like, this is critical race theory. Like, they wanted to be like, you know, this is, this is Antifa that fucking <laughs> renovated this hotel. And it's like, they were saying these things that on the face of it didn't make any sense because it, they're just aesthetic cultural phrases that people on the other side of the culture war will use, like cancel culture. Like, how is renovating a hotel and not making all the aesthetic choices that you think, how is that cancel culture? Like, is this the same as taking down the statues in the South? <laughs> like, like, how is it the same? But really, it was just like, I don't know, they were drunk and they were reacting to the gentrification or something. But they also don't live here. They live in like the Bay and they were like they coming in them coming in from the bay and bringing their fucking bay money in and buying our expensive cocktails and sitting at the bar that's a that's gentrification but somehow that just cuz they're right wingers they just had this they could just feel it in the air that we're fucking liberals here and the people working here like this is not maga like i draw a line in the sand every morning when I walk into work, I look down on the ground and with my eyes, I draw a bright red line around that building and I say that this is fucking, you know, <laughs> we're liberals here, you know? And if you want to be trans, you know, come be trans with us, you know? And if you want to wear a red MAGA hat, then go across the street to piece of shit toves where the whole thing is built on a foundation of rat poop and everything comes out of a bag from Cisco, you know? Go to Serenos. Go be fucking white supremacy see, with, at Serenos, you know? Because you're not welcome here. We don't, we don't serve your fucking hateful kind over here, you know? And these people could feel it, even though none of what they were saying made sense. But, and then I just stood there and I was like, I didn't really, it was funny because I couldn't really think of like perfect responses to them saying this is cult, cult, uh, cancel culture. <laughs> because there is something funny you could say to it. Like something about how, oh, you think this is, yeah? You think this is taking down statues? You think this is critical race theory, how we fucking renovated our hotel? You think the fact that we like took down this wall and made it a more open solution? You think that's like something about taking the wall down and letting the Mexicans in and... This is the caravan, you know, the fact that we painted the walls white and let in more light. You think that's like more, that's the caravan, you know, that's the, that's human trafficking. Like what, how is, how does the culture war run through the heart of every man? Like, how is this related lady, drunk lady who's yelling at me and her husband being more appeasing and being like, but we still love it. Like, they, we, we lost the history here, but we still love it. And the lady was like, you need a suggestion box because we don't love it. And the husband was like, no, we love it. And she was like, we don't love it. This is cancel culture, the way you renovated this hotel and painted it like this. And it's like, yeah, okay, hey. And I was like, yeah, okay, hey. I don't know. I, did, I, wish, I wish I would have argued with her more and been like, yeah, well, we love it. And we want it like this. 
and this is what it's this is what it's going to be and we're not taking suggestions lady and 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 I'll see you later we're not ta- there's no yeah write it down on a piece write your suggestion down on a piece of paper and give it to me and I'm going to th- throw it, you know throw it in the trash you know it's not we're not hey lady we're not taking suggestions we're not taking suggestions we're good we like it like this we're very proud of what it is we're very proud of how we treat people here we're very proud of in what trench of the culture were we're fucking we're at you know i don't know it's so fucking weird and funny uh, anyway another funny thing that happened at work today jesus i'm going to just say everything i have to say before i uh have anything to have drink any water is I I was at work and I I am uh, I leave the office and I walk through the restaurant to just make sure everything is good and I walk past the host stand and at the host stand is a man a guest and he is speaking to Maya Maya Yogi my favorite host everyone's favorite host tied with Hannah everyone loves Hannah tied with Kelsey everyone's the best you know but I love Maya and Maya is about fucking four nine or something Maya is really short. And Maya, her hair always looks like she's in a fucking L'Oreal commercial. She has perfect hair. And she's so pretty and so presentable, and I love her. And she's such a perfect face of our establishment, and I love that she's a host. And she's standing by the host stand doing a perfect job, and she's speaking to this guest. And I'm mentioning Maya's height because the guest she's speaking to is probably seven foot four inches. I don't know what that means. He's probably two meters and 20 centimeters tall, you know? He's a tall motherfucker. He's probably a full foot taller than me. And probably even taller than that because he's hunched over and he's still a foot taller than me. Like a freak of nature level tall, you know? And he's really, really old. He's probably 65, 70, which is such a, like, there's something once you get really, really tall, that's like, it's like, like there's certain visceral body reactions you have when you see stuff. Like when you see someone get shot, you just react in your body and you're like, oh, that's awful. Or when you see someone who's had an arm be amputated, like when you see someone who is not totally right, the human body just reacts in this powerful way where you're like, there's something wrong here. And your body just like contorts a little bit. And you have to fight it because we're civilized people. And someone who only has one arm, they have to live all day with people looking at them and just contorting a little bit and being like, oh, Jesus, that's off-putting. And you don't want to otherize them and you don't want them to feel bad. So we're all out here trying to have a society and we're trying to feel make them feel nice. And we're trying to fight that knee-jerk reaction and just be like, hi, how are you? And treat them like everyone else. That's what it is to be a civilized person in a society. You look at everyone and you try to treat them all good. And you try to treat them all the same, even though some people look weird to us. And now weird is a loaded negative word, but our, our body and our subconscious understands what weird is. And you can't fucking argue with that. It's just the truth, you know? And sometimes when people play around with how you present gender... And when you play around in the gray area between the genders, your body looks at it and you're like, oh, God, that looks weird to me. And you have to fight and you have to treat them nice and you have to treat them with love and respect. And you have to just say, hi, how are you? Even though maybe you're like, Jesus Christ, that's a lot of chest hair coming out of that fucking evening gown, you know? There's an Instagram account. There's this guy called Alok V Memnon or something. 
and he he has a he's like Middle Eastern ethnically he's like Middle Eastern. He has a big black beard, and he has a lot of chest hair, and he always wears these floral pattern, beautiful, lots of makeup, like drag queen makeup, but a big black beard, and always wears these like Met Gala beautiful dresses, and he has these speeches about like the fact that you're disgusted by me is like your own prison. And there's, I like, I look at his Instagram and I feel so much disgust and I big, agree with him. I agree with him. The fact that I feel that disgust be, just because he breaks up these tropes of what we expect, it is like a prison. And I want to just break free. And I want to just be, oh, I want to have seen enough of everything to be jaded, to just be okay with it. And I want to just be able to walk up to a man who isn't wearing a shirt, a topless man with one arm, and I want to look at his stump and I want to be like, how you doing, bro? And I don't want to be disgusted with that at all. And I want to see someone playing around with gender and I want to just be their friend and I want to be free. And being free, like we are born and we're programmed and we're given a lot of prisons and we're put inside of a lot of mental prisons and I want to just break free. And I want to see a black guy and I want to don't, I want to like be jaded enough to not have, um, what's that called? Um, implicit bias. The phrase is implicit bias. You know, I want to be aware of my own implicit biases. I want to admit to them. I want to be jaded so I can minimize them. And whenever they come up, I just want to like note them and then move on. You know, it's the healthy thing. There's so many things that just bubble up into our minds and we feel shame around it. You know, you're in a relationship, you walk down the street, you see someone with, with big old jugular titties and you like react to them and you're like, Jesus Christ, those are some, those are some big titties and some, some, um, you know, hard nipples and you react to it and you just accept it in your mind. You're like, I'm in a relationship. I just reacted to that. I felt some sort of like, re you know, and for me, it's not even, physical body parts as much as it is like you are in a relationship, you talk to someone, you become 30-second infatuated with someone outside of the person you're in a relationship with, and you're just okay with that. It's just like, that's just how I work. I can just move on. It doesn't mean anything bad. It's not something I've, It's not something I'm in control of. It's not th something I should be ashamed of. I'm just here. I'm just acknowledging what came up in my mind now, and I'm moving on, and I'm my actions and my you know, the energy I'm putting out should still be like constructive and positive and good towards people. All of that stuff, right? So all of that is to say that I walk past the host stand and there's a guy who's like seven foot something and he's old. And there's also something about him being old where it's like, we associate someone being like eight foot tall with that there's something, you're so far from the norm that there must be some health thing going on. And that health thing usually means that you don't get to be very old. So there's something really eyebrow raising about this extremely tall, very old man. And then here's the thing. Here's the comical thing. Because I think we can say that it's comical because he must be aware of this like cultural trope joke that he's make doing here. You know what he's wearing? <laughs> you know what he's wearing? He's wearing a tan totally classic tan fabric belt to cinch in the middle trench coat. He's wearing a regular 
trench coat. Like, you never see trench coats in real life. You only see trench coats in cartoons. I don't know why trench coats are a thing in cartoons and why they're not a thing in real life, but that's how it is. And trench coats are only ever a thing in some movies and in a lot of cartoons. I don't know why. The only one I've ever known who wore a trench coat is fucking Ingrid in Sweden. She wore a trench coat. And it was just like this... um, Her wearing it was like a commentary on how you never see trench coats in the real world and how they're actually very cool. And she wore a lot of things like that. That's like a commentary on how you know about it and everyone's aware of it and it's in a lot of media, but you never see it in real life. She always wore, she also wore like tan safari outfits, which is like tan shorts and tan button up safari tops with a safari hat. And it's like this outfit that you never see in real life, but for some reason we like see it in Jumanji and like in all these other things and I don't know. It's like we're born with knowledge of certain things and we like never see them. But when we see them, we're so familiar with them. It's like a very weird feeling. But so here's this eight foot guy, old man in our lobby and he's wearing a trench coat. And the first thing I think is like, Jesus Christ, is that three children stacked on top of each other? Because an eight foot character in a trench coat is always three children. Like, is this... You know, that. So I see the man and then I walk up to the host stand and I say to Maya and whoever else was there. And before I can even say it, Maya is like, was that three children stacked eight foot tall in a trench coat? And it's like such an incredibly profound subconscious Joseph Campbell moment of cultural tropes and like the unspoken and the the familiarity and the oneness of all of us and how we all think and feel the same thing and we don't have to say it with language, but it's one thing and we're all having the same experience. And like, did the man do that on purpose? And is he like some sort of like Joseph Campbell-esque like, is he like an angel who just travels around the world giving people this profound sense of oneness of how we all it's like a visual, it's like how God has a great sense of humor. And the great sense of humor is that like, you think, I don't know. I don't know how to fucking describe it, honestly. It's so crazy. That man makes us all feel the same thing. And that thing is, it's that three children stacked in a trench coat, and the top one is wearing old guy makeup? Like, he's eight foot tall, and he decided to just go with it and wear a trench coat. Anyway, let's drink a water. So the, the, the this podcast is really in a, in a state of ascendancy, right? There was, a, there was a period of a of a deep, dark lull when I was feeling very, like, stretched very thin, and I wasn't sleeping enough, and I wasn't... I didn't have enough mental bandwidth or time to really procure water. So I was drinking water on the pod and the waters were like unrelated to each other. And the flights I put together for the episodes didn't even really make any sense. And now we are once again in a golden era of sparkling water podcasting where last episode we did Blood Orange, three beautiful different brands of Blood Orange. Jesus, that's a loud vehicle driving past on the highway far from where I'm at 
You can hear it probably on the microphone. Anyway, the Blood Orange episode last week with Maddie, three beautiful brands doing all doing Blood Orange head to head. Really, really meaningful conversation about sparkling water, two hours and 15 minutes with your ex-girlfriend about how Joe Kim's a piece of shit. Really good podcasting, you know? And then now, three waters, three different brands, all dragon fruit. Three different flavors. No, three three different brands all doing dragon fruit. So the first one here, tonic with a K. Berry dragon fruit. Fute. <laughs> dragon fute. What? Um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, yeah, because I was going to say dragon fruit hemp infused, and it became dragon fruit, dragon infused, which makes it dragon infused. Tonic with a K. Oh, my God. Wa- uh, vitamin enhanced hemp seltzer. This is not alcohol, right? No, but it is hemp. Smells sugary, smells candy, smells weird. Very cool. Very cool, very earthy, very strong cannabis flavor. Very much like you take take a weed cartridge and you just crack it open and you just let one drop of this extremely potent, smelly stuff, this waxy, gooey stuff in a cannabis cartridge, and you just drop one drop of it into a can of sparkling water. It's almost like it's metallic. It's very much like an old weed cartridge. Cannabis cartridges have this quality to them that when they're running out, you like are really burning less of the cannabis. It's less of just like reminiscent of leafy cannabis and it's more just like waxy, chemical, metallic, vaping, whatever the driving gas in vape is. Like when a vape, nicotine vape cartridge runs out, it's also metallic like that. This tastes like that, which isn't good, but it's very cool. Because there's a sweetness. It's a very full spectrum flavor palette here. I would never drink this again, but it's actually a journey. And I would encourage you to, to oh, what is that? 80 calories. I was like, is that 80 fucking milligrams of caffeine? No, it's 80 calories. Um, I would encourage you to try this one time because it's a fucking journey. It's like a sweetness from berry, juiciness from dragon fruit. And it's got all this earthy, tangy, zippy, like disgusting dirtiness of cannabis oil all together hitting you at the same time. It's like your mind is a piano and the pianist approaches and just presses 10 keys at the same time. Just bing, just creating this discordant, like too many keys are being pressed at the same time here with this flavor. Like something so dirty and something so juicy and so weird all at the same time. God damn. So that's a 7.5 out of 10 just because the journey is really cool, even though it's kind of gross, but it's fucking fascinating and weird. I've been watching a lot of TV. Let's let's scoot on to a different topic. I've been watching TV. I watched something called This Stays Between Us or This Is Between Us or whatever. It's like a four-part documentary. It's really kind of reminiscent of I, – I, I related to it in the sense that like the documentarian, she has this thing she wants to do and she isn't sure about the format and it's very um, – it gets really rambling and meandering and it's like really not cohesive, but I don't mind because it's all sort of, the goal is always one thing. You can clear tell what the goal is and it's nice. The whole thing is nice. 
Relating, saying that I relate to it is really like um, giving myself too much credit. I, I more relate to it in the sense of like, I would like to make things, I like to make things that give people that feeling where it's like, I don't think cohesiveness is the most important thing. I think the most important thing is to make art that makes the world a better place. And this is really trying to do that. It's a, it's a thing where she had, she was 16 and a, and she got in a relationship with her teacher who was like 20 years older than her. And then they were, would like make out. And I don't think they had sex until she turned 18, but it was like a deeply inappropriate, um, damaging relationship. And then she like moved with the teacher to a different state and he was married. And she like, the teacher just told everyone that they just had a close relationship and he was just a mentor to her. And, and while the teacher was married, she moved in to the house where he was living with her wife, with his wife. So all three of them are living in the same house and she's living in the basement and he's like controlling her mind in this like abusive way and not letting her leave the house and she's in school and his office is across the hallway from the basement room where she's living and he can track her every movement. And it's like this deeply damaging, traumatizing thing that happened in her formative years that really fucked her up. So then when she's in her late 30s, she wants to make a documentary about this. And she like just puts out these Facebook posts of like, have you been in a relationship with uh, a teacher? Like, we want to hear your story. And it's like a super free-formy thing where she talks about her thing for an episode and a half, and then some other girl talks about her thing for one episode, and then there's a little bit about some other thing. But really, they're just trying to talk about the bigger thing of how it's in the South, and, and um, you know, everything about it is the same. Like, having men, having the whole culture be this, like, men-centric, white men control everything, white men are the tastemakers, and your whole life is really like you're looking for approval from white men and it's all like i've been watching all these documentaries and they're all in one like they all have this thing in common of interrogating this like thing of what are the the side effects and negative side effects of of this world this like vaguely christian sexist sort of handmaid's tale light world that we're living in like it's very related to the God forbid thing because it's like the same thing. And it's so, it's so nice to watch it because I really think that if you watch a bunch of it, you have it, it, you, it puts a voice in your mind of how these are things we should think about. And even if the difficult thing is this. I had a conversation with Doug about this that's like really, that really pointed it out to me. Because I think Doug and me are really similar in that we're both like liberals and we have these liberal tendencies and we have such similar political instincts and cultural and like ethical instincts, but we are of different generations. So Doug has like traveled from a world that was way more sexist. And I think he was like, really trying to be a good guy about stuff and he was a good guy about stuff and he really was part of a generation that made the world a better place because things could have been like I, I was also I've been listening to this Rachel Maddow podcast called Ultra about a sedition trial in the 40s and 30s where like there like in World War II there were all these Nazis in the US government and when you listen to it you really realize that like the world could have played out very different and 
and it's easy to listen to it and, and be like frustrated that those Nazis didn't, they didn't all go to prison and they, there was all the, like they would, they would use the U.S. government to send out Nazi propaganda that was written by the German Nazi government and blah, blah, blah. It's this whole thing. And, and then they don't go to prison and everything's a mistrial and no one is really punished. And there's all these white supremacists and there's this like huge white supremacist Christian movement in the 40s and 50s and no one is ever fucking punished. And there's always white supremacists in the South and blah, blah, blah. But you can also be like, look, Shit's a lot better now than then, though. And, like, the fact, like, then you listen, then you watch this, like, documentary about this woman who had a relationship with her teacher in the 90s. And it's, like, a bad world that she's describing, but it's better than the world in the 40s. And then you watch this God Forbid documentary about, like, the 2020s. And you feel like, well, shit's fucked up, but it's still better than the 90s. And, like, we are on this, like, the macro trend is a positive path. And I do feel like proud of Doug's generation for pushing us from that, from this stuff in the 40s and the 60s and the 70s and the 90s and, and just putting the macro trend is a good trend. But then there's this difference of like the next level, the one blind spot that Doug's generation has. Like Doug's generation understands. Doug is like 20 years older than me. He's probably in his 50s, right? I'm in my late 30s, he's in his late 50s. I don't actually know, but something like that. The, like, he understands that, like, it's really tough. Like, that we need to have bright red lines around consent. And we need to really, like, it's, life is harder for women than for men. And, like, same with racism. Like, all these bright ethical understandings of the world. And then the blind spot is, like, the really, really spongy, really squishy, soft stuff where like when I watch 10 documentaries that interrogate like the negative effects on stuff around the edge of society because we were because America has arranged to be like this thing where straight white guys who are slightly Christian are like at the center of everything, the cultural center of everything. Um when I watch enough of that, I get this voice in my head where I understand this, like, there's this thing of, like, like, we've had issues at work where people have abused power and people have had to be reprimanded and we are a good, safe place for people and for young people and, like, for people with on different gender journeys. And it's like, I'm proud of our progressive chops. And it's like... I'm proud of working there and I think but 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 the the thing that the difference between me and Doug cuz we had a couple of conversations about this is like the absolute last frontier now where Doug is a little bit behind I think is like the admitting how we're all guilty and how we're all flawed because we had this conversation where Doug expressed a little bit of frustration about um having to do a harassment course as if there's something he needs to learn, as if he's not already doing a good job. It's just like a mandatory harassment course for everyone. And I could just feel the difference in us. Because for me, it's like, I feel how I, there's always more I can and should be learning about it. I sound like I sound like such a fucking wimp right now. I sound like such a bitch. But like, I should all, we should always be learning and we should always get better at it. And we should always... 
you know? Like, I think the difference between me and Doug is that I'm happier admitting that I'm a racist fuck. And it's, like, not fashionable for people of Doug's generation to just be like, I'm a... It was more important for them to say, I'm not a racist fuck. And that was the war. The war was to say that out loud. And that's how you made the world a better place. And now, interestingly, we are in a new decade where now, if you want to be on the right side of history, and if you want to push the world even further, you're actually, you should actually be saying, I'm actually a racist fuck. And I'm actually a sexist fuck. And I'm actually part of the problem. And I actually have more more work to do. Like, that's how you make, that's the last frontier now. And one of the very practical things I've been thinking about is like, I think even though I'm like not doing anything bad with any subordinates, I uh, I I think it's possible to be part, to be part of, a, of the problem and to be part of a, to make the world a worse place. If I like decide to have conversations with like young female subordinates that like I need to have professional conversations with them about stuff. I need to like give them feedback. I need to like ask them about their schedule. I need to like get feedback from them. I need to like ask if they have, you know, interpersonal conflicts with someone that I need to like manage. If I decide to have those conversations like in the office one-on-one with a closed door, it like creates a culture of everyone feeling like, oh, it's kind of normal for there to be like those, like for like closed door conversations, I think is part, like normalizing closed door conversations between people like that is like, one tiny facet of it that's like a tool that can be used by people who aren't good people. And it's like, yeah, it's so interesting. It's so interesting to me because it's like so involuntary. Like you don't want to be a bad person and you don't, you're not, You can look at this situation and just very clearly be like, I'm not being a bad person. But from this like structural systemic lens, you are creating something that's like, or like anything where you say any joke that's like funny and and moves the goalpost, anything that has anything to do with like, um sex or like self-deprecating stuff or like outrageous jokes even though it's like you do them in a group in front of everyone so no one feels like singled out and no one feels like like because i've made i've talked like 30 episodes ago i talked about how there was this one time when i was hanging out with Corey and tosh and i like i said some funny i was trying to say some funny outrageous thing about like american women and and sex or something and make some generalization about that. And then, and I was just a server at the time. So the expectations were lower. Like when you're a manager, it's different. Like your cultural, the way you decide what's acceptable culture is very different. But so I said something and it was just like, just because Tosh was the only girl in the room, it just made her feel more, um, 
singled out, even though she wasn't singled out and the thing wasn't even said to her. She just like overheard it and she was the only girl in the room. Even if you're cognizant of that, even if there's like, because if there's six girls in a room that hear a joke, they hear it very different than if there, there's one because they, they just have like the safety of each other in a sort of cultural, psychological thing. So it's like there's a thing you can say to six girls where they just feel like, yeah, God, this is so abstract, but I do believe it's true. And um, yeah, anything, anything that sounds like a vaguely racist joke, if you're like, one guy, white guy and there's like one other white guy in the room and then there's like six black people in the room and you say like a vaguely racist joke. It's just like so much more okay somehow because you're, you're like giving – because there's a majority of, of black dudes in the room that have an opportunity to like respond and be like – I don't like the way I don't like the way you said that, and they like just have there's this like a safety in numbers where people can be like, "I don't like the way that sounded or felt like that's not, or they can be okay with and be like, that's actually kind of funny <laughs> and um yeah, so it's like I think it's so nice, I think the point of all this stuff I'm saying is like I think it's so nice that we have this wave of thoughtful media that's interrogating the world we're living in. And if you consume enough of that media, it puts these like helpful voices in your head of how you should be part of the solution in this like very abstract, um, squishy way of how you need to don't move the goalpost at all. Because even if you move the goalpost just a little bit, and say something slightly outrageous or sexualizing in a way that's still okay, you're moving the goalpost in a way that can then later, bad people can stand on your shoulders and take advantage of how you move the goalpost a little bit. I'm really having this conversation with myself because I've always felt like it's fun to say outrageous things. And especially I've always thought it was funny to say outrageous things when I'm younger and I don't have any power and I'm speaking to older people who have more power than me, who seem more conservative than me, and I want to just blow their minds by saying something disgusting or outrageous or horrible. And I like to do it when I upon first meeting someone because it's a great shortcut to figuring out if, are we going to be friends? Are we? Because you can either be quickly become very good friends or they can reject you. Like you meet someone who's, you're 20 years old and you meet someone who's 15 years older than you and you say some horrible, offensive joke to them and you try to offend the fuck out of them. And then if they are like, they love it, now you're best friends, even though you've only known each other for 10 minutes, or they just look disgusted and walk away and now you know that you were never going to be good friends anyway. Like I've always had that one be, that's always been one of the guiding stars of how I've existed socially and made friends and how I've made people like me. And I'm like pathological people pleaser. Like that's one, that's been one of my pathological people pleaser guiding stars. And I'm, I'm sort of having to revise it a little bit because now I'm not 20 years old anymore. And it's a little bit, it just comes out a little bit different. Like, when I'm 40, shit just comes out a little bit worse. Shit just comes out sounding a little bit more fucked up. And it's just, like, not that cool anymore. And I think somehow I was act 
it's like things change. It's interesting how things change. Like there was a time when to make the world a better place, you have to stand up and you have to speak to people and say to the group, I'm not a racist fuck. And then you planted a flag there and you were making the world a better place because you were creating this permission structure of other people to say that and then everyone could feel safer and it could be a better world. And now, 40 years later, you have to plant a flag differently and you have to say, I'm actually... I I am a racist fuck and you have to admit to Im- implicit bias and you have to m- admit to all these how we are flawed and how we're part of systemic problems still and it's like the same thing goes for like what age you're in and it's like as a 20 year old I think I was making the world a better place by like saying horrible things to older people in power and then now when I'm sort of like an older person with a tiny bit of power it's like saying horrible things actually makes people cower and makes them feel a little bit smaller and makes them feel a little bit scared and makes them feel a little bit bad and and it opens it up for other for, for bad people to say bad things too and be like but he said it first Joachim said it first Joachim said a similar thing first and I know I pushed the envelope a little bit but he pushed the envelope some anyway that's what's going on with me Let's drink in the next water here. So this one is called sparkling ice. Okay, we're familiar with sparkling ice. Super fruit. Okay, strawberry dragon fruit. Zero sugar. I have a really, really bad experiences with sparkling ice. Also, there's probably caffeine in this. Low calorie. Anyway, can't find if there's caffeine in it, so there probably isn't. Ah, uh, yeah, like with everything sparkling ice. The, the first impression is aspartame. And when you drink something and your first impression is aspartame, there's nothing you could say to me to make me want to keep going. I will never want to push through that. That like cloy, clawy, disgusting, coats the roof of your mouth, stevia, monkey fruit sweetener, such aggressive, violent sweetness artificial sweetness like there's nothing i i will never want to go beyond that so that's a one out of ten that's disgusting that's disgusting um <clears throat> there's one other angle there's one other thing i wanted to say like one so in the one in the show like between us or whatever it's called this stays between us i wish i could remember what it's called but it's called some it's some forward combination of this stays between us uh, and it's about like the teachers having relationships with eighth graders or ninth graders or whatever juniors in high school i wish i knew the four words for the different years of high school in america so fucking annoying it's like there's the metric system and then there's the imperial system in america of pounds and ounces and everything and it's like bro the fucking sophomore and junior and that bullshit that they use like that's the same as they're uh, uh, just fighting the metric system. Just say 10th grade, bro. Just say 12th grade. Like, can you just... It's so hard to keep track of. I'm I'm humiliated. Whenever I have to go to the bank for work, it's like this. We deposit all of our money. That Like, when, when people pay with cash at the end of the day, the day's cash sales gets taken out of the till and put in an envelope and then brought to the bank the next day let's pretend like it happens every day um it really it happens quite it happens with some frequency but so then i go to the bank and i have 
some envelopes with deposit slips and money in them. And then I give them the deposit slip and the stack of bills and there's an individual deposit slip for each day. And then I stand there and the bank teller lady is like, okay, so this one, the deposit for this day, it's missing uh, a little bit of money. So I just need, I need a dime and a quarter. And I can't even, I need a nickel and a dime. And when they say I need a nickel and a dime, it's a fear response. It's a fight or flight. I just want to, it's like one of those, it should be some sort of video on the internet where you can see me just turn around and just run the fastest I can straight backwards. And I don't notice that there's a glass door there and I just run straight into the glass. Like that's what my heart does. That's the reaction. Because I cannot keep track of your stupid coins and your stupid names for them. Can they just be called 10 cents, 15 cents, whatever they are? Can they just be the numbers? Like, what is it with these words? What the fuck is a sophomore? What's a nickel, dude? Nickel is a metal, dude. And it doesn't, it has nothing to do with the metal, dude. Anyway, so I'm always at the bank and it's like, can I just have a penny and a nickel? And then I have these stacks of coins in front of me. And she can see my hand hesitating like I don't know which one it is. And she looks at me like, wow, your mom must have had a lot of alcohol while she was pregnant with you. Because you look like you're in your 30s and you don't know the names of the coins. Like, do you know how to read? Like, like what's wrong with this guy? And it's one of the many, many, many problems of being a white guy who looks American and sounds American in America who isn't American. It's one of the many, many times when I'm like, I'm listening to someone say something and I can just, too many words in a row that I don't know the meaning of show up in their speech. And I can feel myself losing control of the story and not following in a way that's like unacceptable. And I hate that feeling. I hate being like, I, I don't know where Elk Grove is. I don't know what soft war means. I don't, I can't keep track of which one, the dime. I don't know, dime, like dime. I, you know, my car says I, I can, I have 17 miles left until I'm out of gas. Like, I don't, I don't know what a mile, I don't know. I, I know where the gas station is. I don't know if it's 17 miles. Like, I just, I'm not, I don't know what's going on here. I'm trying to hold on to it. I'm trying to feel oriented. And I'm losing it. I'm losing it. Anyway, what I was going to say was not that. What I was going to say is that, so one other thing in the show, the Between Us or whatever, is like um, one of the uh, stories. That she just like finds different women who get to talk about it and just talk about it and tell their own story in a small way of what happened between them and a teacher that abused them or like had a relationship with them. Um and like what they think it says about society at large or whatever. And then one of them is a lady who wrote a book. It's a lady who just wrote a memoir about her experience where her teacher, um, she had a relationship with her teacher when she was in high school. And a fascinating thing in the show is that so many of these is like that it's a English teacher who like has the students write, they ask the student to write poetry. Like poetry is a big part of this TV show where all these different women 
end up in relationships with all these different teachers at ages where these women are minors. And all these teachers are like fucking grading their poetry. And then the teachers write poetry back to them. And then you end up with this vague shit where it's like a teacher is talking about his longing. And it's like, that's how you break down. It really shines a light on the thing of how I really believe that this squishy stuff that's hard to put your finger on it, where like, it matters. Like the fact that teachers get to write poetry where it's like the teacher, it's a squishy way, but you cannot say that just because you wrote that poem, you crossed the line. You can't say that because the poem itself doesn't cross the line. The poem is just this squishy sort of human speech thing where you're like, you're sort of pushing the envelope here on what's appropriate. And in the same way, like me with just saying outrageous jokes all the time is a pushing of the envelope that's like, it's part of a culture probably that isn't great because it might move, the, it might shift the boundaries in a way that's in the long term, it's not good. But it's really, it, no one could really ever, po- like, okay, that's a way too strong of a statement. What I was going to say, I was going to be like, no one can ever really say that one of my jokes is like wrong. But uh, you definitely can. <laughs> and I think a lot of my jokes are horrible and terribly wrong. But most of them are like just in the gray area because I think the gray area is hilarious. And that's my problem. The gray area is so hilarious. Gray area. Um, reminds me of this hilarious um there's this hilarious tiktok account of a it's like this young hispanic guy who impersonates his dad pronouncing with a heavy mexican accent different american words and it's like yeah it's very funny gray area it's um if i had a son he'd impersonate me saying things stupidly but anyway um where was i Yeah, so the jokes and the poetry and all of this is squishy and all of these women are writers and they all feel singled out and like this teacher points to them when they're 16 and says, you're a great writer. And for the first time they feel seen and they feel like the teacher gives them all this extra tutoring and then they end up at his house and there's all this writing help and then there's some negging and being like, you don't, you don't got used to be a great writer. You're not trying anymore. And now they really want to, they really want to try to please the teacher. And then, and then horrible abusive shit happens where they fucking end up sucking their dicks or something. And um, what I was going to say about it, though, is like um, one of these women, write, they, she writes a memoir about her experience being 16 and, and getting all this attention from a teacher and then end up being, ending up in a relationship with her teacher. And then all the different women in the show read the book and they all feel like this is exactly like my story. The parallels are incredible. And she talks about how when she wrote the story, I felt so alone. And I just felt like I just wanted to write how I was feeling and like my experience and things I was feeling bad about. And then when she got her first message from someone that had read her book and been like, I felt exactly the same way. The, the writer of the book, she, the author, she just starts bawling and she's just crying because she like felt seen for the first time that this long form explanation of what she'd been through for the first time, like someone said, that's exactly how I felt. And it's like this incredible, like bonding through writing the book length document becomes this portal connecting to people perfectly and and then they it's like 
all the women are like, I felt exactly like in your book. And the woman who wrote the book is like, I, so, I feel so like, and it's so funny to me watching that whole thing. Because I everything she said about how she felt writing the book is how I felt writing my book. And then some people read my book and no one ever said, yeah, that's how I felt. And when you write it, you feel like, oh, I'm alone. And then sometimes you, probably because my book is shittier than her book, because I didn't manage to universalize it, Part it's probably two things. Probably partly my, as an artist, I'm just a worse artist where I didn't manage to universalize, because any human emotion can probably be universalized. And I think what I was trying to write about was like a sense of belonging and and the lack of a feeling of home and all and identity issues and stuff. And I think that's squishy enough that it should and could be universalized in a successful way where someone could read it and be like, that's exactly how I felt. So partly I'm not good enough of an artist. And then partly I just think the shit that like that my super eccentric choices of like, okay, so I'm going to move to China. Uh, okay, so I'm only going to be friends with Sebastian and Sebastian and me are going to be super weird and we're going to just do drugs and we're just going to like play poker all day and we're going to fucking be completely fucked up and give ourselves all this fucking trauma and have these horrible experiences and get way too wasted and, and be way too focused on language and all these weird places and, and we're going to relate to the world only in, through language and we're going to learn all these like unusual combination of languages. Like we're going to be really focused on Swedish, English, Chinese as our lens on the world and and that tripartite of those three things. It's like way too specific and unusual of a thing that at the end of it, like there's a thing of what like there's a double-edged thing here where we grow up and as a young person you want to be unique and so you run and you run and you want to speed up and you want to speed up because you want to get away from the group to be unique and you want to run from the center and get as far as from the center as possible so you run and run and run and run and run and you get really far from the center into a really unique experience and then you reach this turning point where you look back and you're so far from where you started and you're so far from your starting point and you push yourself so far from the starting point because you want it to be unique and you want it to be special that it switches and now you actually want to get back to the center and you want to feel like you want to be at home and you want to get back to a place where other people are like you so you start running back towards the center and then you realize that everything around you has changed and people have gotten older and people are gone and people everything is just different so the center isn't so much a geographical place that you can go to as much as it is a culture. And the journey of running from the center isn't so much like you moving away from a group. It's more like you growing away from a group and becoming this different person. And then the journey back to the center or the failed journey back to the center is really a journey of realizing that you have grown into this incredibly just statistically unusual person, which sounds like now when I say that, it sounds like I'm giving myself a compliment, but really it's a, it's a, it's a lone, it's a loneliness problem. And again, it sounds like I'm giving myself a compliment because loneliness is cool, but I'm not, I'm really trying not to though. Maybe, I don't know. It's a mix, you know, partly I needed to be unique and I needed to run and pull like 10 geographics, but, but I, but it's like, yeah, it's funny to me to listen to this woman and 
listen to what she, her describing her writing process of feeling so alone and sitting for so long with a project, like sitting for like a decade with a writing project of pain and self-therapy, the self-therapy of writing and like the bordering into fiction and not fiction and just trying to stay true to it and trying to express how you really felt and all the bad feelings and putting them all on paper. And then, and then the turning point of her being like, and then when someone had felt the same thing, it was the most exhilarating thing of my life. And then me here, like, no one. Yeah. Anyway, it made me feel funny. It made me feel funny. Because I don't know that I'll ever experience that. Anyway, let's drink another water. So this is um, Polar Seltzer, Dragon Fruit Lemonade. Dragon Fruit. Yeah, I mean, dragon fruit isn't a very complex flavor. It's kind of tangy. And it's got this sort of like fruity bite to it. And it's got so much of dragon fruit is like a texture. It it almost has that in, in uh, common with like strawberry, where like strawberry as a flavor is very hard to capture because really so much of what it is to bite into a strawberry is the texture of it. It's like the firm crispiness of it. And the like sort of TV static as it gives way, the crunch and the biting of the seeds and the like different hardnesses of between the seeds and the flesh of a strawberry. And like dragon fruit is a little bit similar where it's like there's seeds and there's different firmnesses and textures and, and dragon fruit itself, like that doesn't work. As a flavor, dragon fruit doesn't work that well as a flavor, I think, is my big takeaway here. Yeah, I do really respect the, the tonic, though, the first one. Polar seltzer, this, I have no interest in drinking any more of this. This isn't that good. Yeah, anyway, we're living in the golden age of sparkling water. I went to fucking grocery outlet. I walked down the aisle. There was like 10 brands there that I hadn't seen. Spent like 40 bucks in sparkling water. People sent me some shit for free. Wilfred, it's coming up. Be patient. It's going to be good. Yeah, I don't know. I think the episode is over, but but I love you guys, and, and, uh, and thank you for listening.